In this episode, I am once again joined by Daniel Ingram, independent Buddhist writer, author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, and co-founder of the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. Daniel recounts his history with the obscure but powerful fire casino technique, which uses a candle flame to enter into advanced states of meditative concentration. Daniel shares his successes and failures, encounters with occultists and meditation masters, and investigations into ancient texts. Daniel reveals the many uses of the powerful concentration that can be developed using fire meditation, discusses his own experiences of psychic powers and out-of-body experiences, and considers the risks of mental illness when dabbling in esoteric realms. At the time of recording, Daniel had just returned from a three-week intensive private fire casino meditation retreat, and he gives a detailed practice report from his meditative seclusion, as well as practical advice for those who wish to explore this technique themselves. So without further ado, Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram, welcome back to the podcast. Delightful to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you today, especially given that you've recently returned from a three-week intensive fire casino retreat. And we're going to talk about that, uh, what happened on that retreat. I'm sure it's very fascinating indeed. But first, before we do that, I thought perhaps we could go back in time. And you've been a great advocator, popularizer, and some might even say reviver of the Fire Casino practice. And your website, firecasino.org, is full of fascinating resources, practice logs, and field recordings uh, from your explorations and the explorations of your circle of friends. Um, It seems since 2016, which is, I believe, the first set of logs and recordings from from one of your fire casino retreats you've you've personally undertaken i was looking at the 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 um, archive today looks like two or more retreats a year focusing on fire casino yeah when i can although i got a little derailed due to working on the emergence benefactors and emergent phenomenology research consortium projects that i work on and with covid um but Yes. Other than, yeah, I've, I've done a reasonable number. And, but this is the first I had done since the beginning of 2020, when the pandemic began, I was actually on retreat when the whole thing started. Um, actually on two retreats, two, three week retreats with a three week, sorry, with a one week break in between. And, uh, yeah. And that's when COVID began. Then we sort of scurried home and so ended our social retreating until just, uh, this retreat. So. Yes. I remember you were days away from visiting me here on the boat. And we were going to do an in-person recording uh, when you made, I think, the very wise decision to uh, leave the UK and get back to the States while you still could. And sure enough, a few days later, the flights were stopped. Um, So gosh, that seems like such a long time ago now. So, you know, could you say a little about how it was you came upon the fire casino uh, technique, uh, what it was that attracted you to it, and perhaps also walk us through those early years of exploration and retreat? Yeah, thank you. This this is going to be fun. I really appreciate you asking me that because I don't think anybody's asked me that, even though I've talked about Fire Casino a number of times. This is this is going to be fun. So um, that book there and that book there are the Vasudhimaga and the Vimudhimaga. And these are old commentaries. And that book there is a manual of Abhidhamma. And some of these books that you can't see all of here are some of the other texts of the Pali Canon. And when I started getting into Buddhist meditation and I was in India, 
um, between some of my retreats while I was doing some volunteer service there in Bodh Gaya, some people were like, oh, you've got to check out the Vasudhi Maga. And then that lead, led me to the Vimudi Maga. These are old commentarial books. So this one's from about 1500 years ago. And this one's from about, I think, 1900 years ago. And these were, as, as the Theravada developed, they sort of became, you know, things became sort of more systematized and or corrupted, depending on how you want to look at it. But I think more systematized, though there are clearly some issues with the tradition as it progressed, as with all things. And um, they wrote down a lot of instructions about how to meditate. And this was back in a time when, you know, things to write on, palm leaves and the ink and the number of people who could write and everything were all very limited. And so you would be very, very careful about what you spent a lot of time writing down and copying and not only copying, but preserving for up to almost 2000 years, or actually for, with this text over 2000 years, the um, um, Abhidhamma stuff or the, the text that those are based on and, and the Pali Canon things over 2000 years. And so when I started looking at these books, I noticed they went on and on and on about casinos. And I was like, well, that's interesting. It's like lots and lots of pages and very, very detailed explanations and all these remarkable claims about the things that they led to deep genres and powers and seeing, you know, seeing entities and divine eye and divine ear and, you know, conjuring all these things. And, and they just went on and on about it. I was like, really? that's interesting. I was just taught sit mindfully and walk and sit and follow your breath. Like this, this looks like a very, very different thing. And then I started reading about like the, you know, the 40 subjects of meditation, 10 of which are casinos. So the, the, the four color casinos, um, which are going to be white, uh, red, um, yellow, and blue, green, they, they sort of got some color issues and poly something. And then, uh, which is might be black as well. I don't know. Anyway, so so then you've got um, the four elements, earth, fire, air, and water. And then you've got limited space and limited consciousness. And so there were 10 of the 40 objects for Buddhist meditation were casinos. I, I couldn't find anybody who knew much about them or was teaching them, but they seemed super important to these old people and they made remarkable claims about them. So that was my first kind of like head scratcher going, huh, what in the world? what's up with this? This is interesting, right? Because this is how they seem to be doing it. And they gave as elaborate instructions on that as any other meditation techniques, and in some ways, even more so. And so I thought, well, that's curious. And then when I came home from India, and I started going on retreats at Bhavana Society in West Virginia, Bhante Gunaratana, who did his, who not only was a Sri Lankan trained monk, so knew a lot about jhanas, but also did his PhD, I think at American University on the jhanas, and then would talk a lot about the jhanas. And when he would talk about the jhanas, he would talk about the objects for um, contemplation, and he would talk about the casinas, and he would just sort of mention them, you know, as, and he would talk about the 40 objects of meditation. He's a very traditional guy and would talk about traditional lists and things. And I was like, well, that's interesting. He keeps mentioning these as well. And so then I ran into someone I will call Honey Bunny. And Honey Bunny is my um, ex-brother-in-law-in-law, meaning my sister's husband's sister's ex-husband. Well, he was husband at the time. And he was a practitioner of ceremonial magic, Thelema, and... Um, very influenced by traditions like the Golden Dawn, Aleister Crowley, and all of that stuff. 
And they also had elemental practices in there. And if you look at like Donald Michael Craig's Michael, uh, sorry, Modern Magic, which he recommended that I read, they also were talking about elemental practices. And, and I was like, well, this is very interesting. This just keeps coming up. Why is this not being mentioned by anybody? And then they had some exercises where you were supposed to like draw pentagrams in the air for the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram and things like that, which is your first ritual most people would start out with. And you're supposed to be able to sort of visualize these strongly and eventually get to see them. Well, I couldn't see them and he claimed he could. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. And I thought, well, okay, so someone thinks they can actually do this and see the pentagrams. Okay, that's cool. And then I started, and I was at the same time going back and reading back through Vasudhi Maga and Vimudi Maga stuff. Again, I now had copies of them. Um, that one, I actually made a special trip, trip through London just to find um, on one of my travels. And uh and so, because it was very hard to get back in the day, this is before the internet was anything like it is or Amazon or any of that stuff. And before there were PDFs of it for free online, which there now are. So this is back and still when texts were tricky to come by. And, and I, I found a copy in the Duke University library that was nearby where I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And so I was going through it and going, this is fascinating. Why this keeps coming up. So then um, I started trying to play around with these things at home in relatively low dose and didn't have a lot of success. So I was starting with like white discs of paper and then like a computer generated, you know, colored disc on my screen of my laptop, which gave me some pretty good after images, but, but not that interesting, you know, and just got a little bit of stuff. And then, but the thing that really did it, there were two things that then really galvanized it. And the first was I went to, to Gaia House. And I got some advice from Christina Feldman, which is a long story. I think I've told somewhere else, but I'll, I'll, uh, and she was like, the Nimitta, the Nimitta, give all your attention to the Nimitta. And, you know, and she was like, what some meditation would call the fourth jhana, I wouldn't even call it access concentration, you know, <laughs> and she had this fiery moment of like, just really, it was, I was felt like an empowerment, even though she was totally pissed at me, but it, it felt like somebody's transmitting something. And so I started actually playing around. I was on, I was on these two work retreats at Guy House one month and then another month. So I had a bunch of time and I started playing around with just seeing white on the backs of my eyelids and trying to see white because white was listed as one of the highest of the casinos with fire and light. So the white casino, the fire casino and the light casino sort of seemed to do it all. And they were kind of clearly considered sort of top shelf casinos. And so I started just trying to see more and more white. And I realized that if you just pay attention to the colors on the backs of your eyelids and you start tuning into a color, if you get good at this and your concentration gets strong enough and you do it long enough, eventually that color will start to expand, um, grow, develop, and eventually everything can go white. And then I finally got into a state where all of a sudden there was this shift um, into a state that is going to be very hard to explain. And I can tell you about the entrance to it, the exit from it. And I can't tell you a lot about the state itself, but here's my, my impression of it. Going into it, there was this massive field of kind of white sparkly, like white mist in space with body gone and an incredible sense of mental silence. Time became meaningless. Um, I have no idea how long I was in it. I couldn't possibly tell you. And then I came out with the sense of realization of coming out into a white space and then that dissolving. And there was this profound sense of tranquility and calm. And at that point, that was the strongest concentration thing I had really come upon in that kind of way. And I thought, okay, there we go.
So but then right after those retreats ended, I ended up in medical. Oh, I should also mention on that retreat was the first time I managed to travel out of my body off the cushion shortly after I did that. And this is one of the things where they talk about flying through the air and I left my body and flew through the air. Then they also mentioned when you fly through the air, you always end up in the same position back where your body was. So that's like, okay, they're talking about out of body travel, right? Um, when the thing ends. And so, okay, cool. And so I traveled out of my body for the first time. It was totally chaotic. It just lasted a few seconds, but it was definitely a proof of concept. It's like, okay, not only are these states real and you can get things totally white or whatever, but you can also do powersy things um, when you get this level of concentration. So that was a proof of concept. And then medical school began. So in medical school for a year and a half, and then uh, please interrupt me at any time. I can just go on and on. So as people have noticed, so, um, so I'm in medical school and I don't have any time for retreats at this point, but finally, and over Christmas break, um, in my second year, I have time for another retreat and I go to Bhavana Society. And this is where I really get a sense of what this practice was capable of. And in fact, it was one of my very best fire casino retreats. And it was my first one. So I've got one retreat while I was playing around with casinos, sort of, but not like this retreat. So this retreat was a 17-day retreat, and it was an advanced practitioner's retreat, meaning it was, you know, you had to sort of apply and there was no instruction. Everybody's just doing their own practices. It's it's winter there, so there's a lot of snow and it's very quiet and it's a beautiful place, Bhavana Society. And um I get to uh so practice there and there's no distractions, there's no instructions, there's really no interactions with teachers. We have like a morning and evening sit together and that's you know largely it. And so, um, and I finish up what felt like another insight cycle and that took about 10 days. And then I felt like I was in review phase and I had a lot of horsepower left and I had a lot of time left and I didn't feel like doing any more insight practice. And so, I, and there was this little candle lantern and the kuti I was staying in was the only light source. There was no power in this thing. It was a wood stove and a little, um, sorry, a little uh, oil lantern. And, um, and I thought, well, let me use that as a casino. So I start using it as a casino and I start looking at it and closing my eyes and follow the after images and as far as I can go. And when I don't see anything, I open my eyes and look at the flame again and I start doing this. But by this, you know, but this point in the retreat, I'm really powered up. I've got, I'm on my A game and it was a great retreat. It was fantastic conditions. I just love that place. And I was in a really good headspace. And so it was super easy to concentrate. And before I know it, like the, the candle flame, I close my eyes and I get a red dot that sort of becomes a yellow dot. And then, you know, and then the sequence builds and builds. And then that became a black dot. And then that would become a black dot with lines around it. And then I would get farther and farther and farther into the sequence each time I, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly progressing. So I did this over a number of days. And within a few days, I'm getting a long sequence where it's, you know, red dot, sorry, red dot yellow dot with spinning stuff in it, black dot, black dot with stuff around it, a bunch of lines, these sort of like lines and fractal patterns and interesting moye complexities of these very fine lines of sort of, I call them rainbow flux lines. I don't know what else to call them. They're really fine kind of hairy stuff. And they were sort of making these moye patterns kind of interlacing with each other. And then it would get wider and wider. And then it would become like high, very highly radially symmetrical, almost look like sort of slowly moving Aztec symbols or Mayan symbols or something. They had something of that quality in a great sort of shield. And then that would shift out and I would find myself in a place I never imagined I could get to, which is where I could visualize anything, anything like Pixar, like 
the best Pixar. Like when, when you read the books in the Tibetan texts and they have these elaborate visualizations and the things that are transparent and luminous and living and conscious and interacting with you and perfectly formed. I was like, yeah, no friggin' way, kids. Because I'd tried that and I couldn't do it. So of course I was dismissive of other people being able to do this. And then all of a sudden, thanks to Fire Casino, I was able to suddenly at the end of that sequence, I would shift and then I would find myself in a space with whatever I want visualized as well as you could imagine it possibly being visualized, like I was seeing it in real life. And, um, you know, and, you know, I got a white Vajrasattva and consort, I got a, you know, a Buddha, I got a great black hole. And then these something would happen with these things, they would spin, rotate, collapse in, pull that way, and I would get a fruition, and then I would pop out. And then I would open my eyes, look at the flame, and the cycle would begin, begin again. And then I also realized, like, if I turned into a color, tuned into a color, before I knew it, the color would just um, you know, be showing up everywhere. And in the text, they say one who practices the red casino, for example, which is the one I was starting to play with for whatever reason, um, although now I'm more into purple, but whatever, um, would be everywhere. And so like, and I got, so I could just like visualize a perfect red alligator floating over me in the bed and it was a living alligator and I would be seeing it in the room. And I also noticed, ah, when I draw with my finger in the air now, I can actually see the friggin' pentagrams, you know? And there's this thing when you do it, when you get your concentration really strong and you slow down, it feels like your finger's kind of moving through syrup and then you can see it trailing off. And as your concentration gets stronger and stronger, the trail gets longer and longer and brighter and brighter. And if you really get good at this, eventually the whole thing just kind of hangs there in the air and then fades like something out of Dr. Strange. Um, and so, so I was hooked. And then the problem then with doing more retreats, you would have thought I would have done a bunch more of them. Yeah. Um, um, medical school, residency. Um, yeah. So there's one retreat in there, but I wasn't using it on fire because, you know, I was using it for insight. And then my medical career, which basically took over everything. And then I didn't do retreats for a very long time. So that's the beginning of the story. Thank you, Fire Casino. Thank you, old people who transmitted all this cool stuff. And thank you, interesting ceremonial magic people who helped inspire me to do this as well. So a lot of gratitude there. Anyway, I've been talking for a while. What you got? Well, that's fast. I've got a lot of questions. That's so fascinating. Um, uh, no, could you correlate some of those key uh, landmarks, biographical landmarks with where you were at in terms of your progression, which we've discussed in previous interviews, I'm sure listeners will be aware of. We, the, I've interviewed you many times. Um, your progression through the four path model, are you able to place them in uh, approximate year, the two months in Gaia House, the breakthrough retreat at the Bhavana Society, for example, um, where you were roughly in your insight journey? Yeah, so for all of those, and again, this is gonna, the conservatives in the crowd are not gonna like this. My apologies, because I keep annoying them and I feel bad about that, but I don't know what else to do. We'll talk about that actually, hopefully when we talk about the defense mechanisms and the stages of grief and all that in practice, which is one of the insights I had on my retreat. Um, so apologies again, but I, I thought of myself as an onagami. And the reason I thought of myself as that, as I had gone through at least three major insight cycles with three major shifts, and now walking around the vast majority of the field in real time got that it was it, the answer, transient, luminous, ungraspable, immediate, natural, causal, and a little bit somewhere in the background didn't. And this was in the middle of what I call my 27 cycles of insight. Remember I said I had, did a cycle of insight. Well, that was one of many insight cycles that I don't know if it was actually about 27, it's a rough count of cycles I went through that seemed to deepen, improve, you know, expand on that basic 
immediate uh, realization, experience, naturalness, et cetera, but um, which didn't do the thing. And so that was, so both of those two retreats I mentioned, the, the um, nine, uh, uh, 1999 and uh, the 2001 retreat um, were both in that general period. And then the, all the other retreats would be way later, way into the, you know, past the 2003 April retreat where the thing flipped over and stayed flipped over. And yeah. So what time of your life was that roughly in terms of age? So, uh, 1999, I would have been, uh, 30 years old. I was born in 1969 and then I would have been, uh, 32, I guess when I was on the other retreat. Uh, no, 32, 31, somewhere in there. I have some more questions, of course, about what you've actually said. 32. Maybe a little curveball. 32, yeah. yeah. This is a little curveball. You know, sometimes they say, it's something that's said in, in music, um, and I think some other arts as well, that one's often at one's most, and about mathematicians actually also, one's often at one's most innovative, the peak of one's powers in terms of sharpness of mind and creative innovation, etc. early in, in the career. They say that about mathematicians, they also say that about, about musicians. The, yeah. the sort of things that one hits upon or, or discovers or, or unfolds in those years are often what are then iterated on throughout the rest of the career. Uh, do you think that's true of meditators? Um, and yeah, so, uh, do you think that's true of meditators? The sort of passion, the singular passion with which you pursued, you've pursued your, your meditation path um, across your whole life. So it doesn't seem to be the case for you, but I'm curious if you if you think that there's something there um, for, uh, for meditators. Yeah, there probably is. I think of 33 as the age of greatness. And I'm not, you know, this is sort of a common theme with Jesus and Napoleon. And, you know, there's all these people who like around 33, some major composers and, and you know, people who conquered the world and stuff. Like that was when they really were like at the height of their power. And in some ways, Sure. In some ways, yes. I mean, it's they're very different kinds of capacity. So the capacity I had then is in some ways even superior in some ways to the capacities I have now. But I also have capacities now that I didn't have then. You know, I'm I'm as anybody who has met me then versus now will tell you I'm, you know, I'm in theory more mature, more balanced you know, easy about these things, more loose, flexible. You know, I was also somewhat zealous in those days in comparison to how I am now. So there's there's changes in pros and cons, right? And they each have their strengths and weaknesses. So um, yeah, so, but in some ways, in terms of new and interesting tech, um, it was definitely easier to explore new and interesting tech in some ways then, though I will say, the curious thing about the fire casino and the reason I keep doing it is because every time I do it, the retreat is very, very different. There, there are common themes of the sequence of how stuff builds up. But then once it's built up, what it leads to is stuff uh, that is new. And so that's why I keep doing it. It's not an old, well-worn trench. It continues to provide treasures that I, I haven't even heard of. Like, you know, when I get to describe this retreat, like I, I don't even know how to map or what to make of some of the stuff that happened on it. I, I'll simply describe it and y'all can try to figure out what in the world you think it was. I don't know. Uh, it's, you know, and that's the interesting thing about this is it itself continues to expand out and innovate in vast territory that I wouldn't know you know, what the end of was, or, you know, even how to think about such things. 
And so that's, you know, the, the massive depths of meditation, um, Fire Casino, that early innovation seems to be a gateway to further exploration and innovation out beyond stuff that I find written. So mm -hmm. very interesting. Anyway, yeah. How about you? What do you think for your own career? How old are you now? I'm 36. Oh, what do you think? Are, are you past that point of genius or are you still plunging into new things? I, if, if it passed, I didn't notice it. Excellent. <laughs> if, if it's passed, then it passed me by as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there are also, of course, other, other domains of knowledge where the accumulation depends on the sort of knowledge, isn't it? That this is the, this is the other side of that uh, meme that one often hears. Well, mathematicians, innovators, artists peak early. Or at least there can be a peak early in, in, in many, uh, but other uh, types of knowledge, perhaps historian, you know, theologian, uh, this sort of thing, where one can accumulate and distill and digest information over a period of time, you can find yourself at peak you know, excellence uh, later. But then of course, we know, I think, great scientists who, who buck that trend, who in their later years still continue to innovate, continue to push the boundaries and continue to overturn um, you know, previous paradigms and so on. So anyway, it's just a sort of meme. I, I wondered how that struck you. Um, yeah, and one more one more thing to say about it. Like the other thing is like the current project I work on, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium and Emergence Benefactors. I couldn't possibly have done those at 33. I needed tons more knowledge about medicine, tons more knowledge about the vast range of what can happen to meditators from talking to eventually thousands of people about that. Tons more knowledge about public health, about healthcare administration, about systems, about the players out there, about the world, about how to, you know, um, handle employees, about interpersonal relations, about how to, you know, scale a global organization and how to like do all the web stuff I'm currently, there's data, there's tons of, I couldn't have done anything like what I'm doing now then. And so that, you know, what I'm doing now feels like a, an unusual opportunity to blend a tremendous amount of these little sort of disparate things I learned over the years into one project. It's, it's a rare thing. And so I feel incredibly blessed to have not only have had not only the opportunity to learn all those things, but the, the amazing opportunity to work with a whole bunch of people to apply them. Yes, that force multiplier of the network that one accumulates over decades yeah. is, I think, often perhaps underestimated, um, at least look from the outside looking in. Yeah. I'm curious, did you say the honey bunny or honey buddy is your honey bunny? Honey bunny. U -N -N -Y. Yeah, that's that's what I'll call him. I don't know if he would want me using his real name. I don't know how public he is these days, but that was what we all called him. Right. How did he develop that kind of extremely high concentration, do you think, that allowed him to, because you, you, you mentioned as you started to get really deep into the fire casino and started to have your breakthroughs at the Babana Society, you're able to, if I tracked you correctly, actually not only close your eyes and imagine a red alligator, but you could also generate the experience of a red alligator in the room with your eyes open. Yeah, you're nodding. And, and also that you're able to trace, as he had said he was able to do, and you were unable to do it when he initially said that to you, you're able to trace symbols in the air and actually see them and, and track them. How do you think he was able to attain such a high level of concentration? Well, A, I think he did a tremendous number of LBRPs. So I think just sheer repetitive practice of that particular ritual and that kind of thing 
B, he had a lot of horsepower. Like he's one of these people who was just driven. His library was, you know, similarly absurd to mine and had read a tremendous amount and also practiced a tremendous amount. You know, did a lot of hours of meditation practice, what he called uh, yoga, yoga as conceived of through Alistair Crowleyan kind of con concepts of yoga. And, you know, really took this stuff super seriously. So I think all of those things helped. Um, those are my guesses anyway, about how he managed to do this mm. from what I know of his practice. You mean book four kind of yoga? Yeah, you get the idea. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, book four. Yeah. Right. That's quite demanding physical, holding long physical poses. Uh, yes. Really, really no, no way of really, uh, how can I say, uh, you either can do that or you can't. Right. And this is, you know, and this is a person who had a high tolerance for pain, uh, a, a powerful, not only just, yeah, a lot of personal power, I will say and a lot of drive and a lot of inspiration to master things. These uh, methods, the casino methods, et cetera, are methods of high concentration or, or even just shine or shamatha practices in general. It's sometimes said that the value of these practices is that you're sort of getting your mind uh, to a certain uh, usefulness or wieldiness or, uh, uh, and then you, in the Buddhist framework, from what I understand, turn towards uh, practices of insight and liberation, which are understood, generally speaking, to be a slightly different category of practice than than those sorts of uh, high concentration states, although perhaps not necessarily. I'm curious um, if you see that as their uh, best use, if you find any other use in this, you've been investigating it deeply. Is it good for liberation and really anything else pales in comparison? Are there other uses? And also, what about honey money? What was he doing where, with this uh, tremendous meditative potency? So he also um, felt that he had various levels of realization. We would talk a lot about practice. Our maps and models were incredibly different. You know, he was talking about, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, the standard Crowley and Golden Donian map of Adeptus this and Major that and whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and master of the Temple and all these things. He was talking, you know, he would talk in those kinds of terms and I would talk in sort of paths and jhanas and whatever. And so we had we had very different maps. It was, a, it was a fascinating conversation that went on for long enough to really get a sense of the interesting different models that people can look at this through. Um, but I actually think Fire Casino, one of the cool things I think about it is it sort of does everything almost. I mean, that's a weird thing to say. So like on this retreat, like I'm, when I describe the state, you tell me what state you think this is, right? And this is the, one of the interesting things I was thinking about this in the retreat. So, so I'm pretty deep into the retreat, right? And, and I'll just describe one little part of the thing. And you tell me if you were attempting to map this, knowing what you know of map theory, what would you call it? I don't know. I have no idea what to call it. Okay, so here are the components of what I'm experiencing. The first thing is these people, you know, these purple fine lines in space converging into flows and shields and um, tunnels and vortexes and things that are moving and changing and becoming sometimes patterns of, you know, like a, a, a fractal or multitude of some sort of like squids or like mushrooms or fingers or I don't know, other things, and then sometimes converging into these very complex regular sheets of, you know, flux lines moving like this. So that's, that's the visual component I'm just going to start with. Against a backdrop of the body being incredibly still 
vast, expansive, peaceful, and tranquil with the thoughts somewhere in this vast, tranquil space, totally thinking about work problems and just sort of running as this little component somewhere in this vast thing with all these colors, just sort of running there, like thinking about, oh, work and, oh, you should talk about, you know, the, the defense mechanisms and how they relate to Jeffrey Kripal's The Split, which hopefully we'll get to at some point, you know, and, and like that's just kind of running in the background with this simultaneously appreciation of the vast, you know, magnificent, boundless luminosity in which all of this sits with, as the, the flux lines go through a predictable pattern, the thing converging, disappearing, reappearing, and going through insight cycles, and then returning to this vast, tranquil, luminous body thing when the mind restarts. So what is that? It doesn't fit anybody's maps or models. It's got insight components going on. It's got some jhanic components. It's got formed stuff. It's got formless realms. It's got casino. And by the way, the thought train is still just working along in its weird creative way as some little component of this vast thing. It doesn't fit anybody's models. Like, you know, shamatha and vipassana are separate things. Well, I guess the Tibetans talk about them not being. Well, in this, no. Like, and then, you know, casinos are a shamatha thing, but insight cycles, they're, they're changing in a very predictable sequence related to insight cycles, you know, and then the sequences start again. And then, so what is that? I don't know, but it, it, it sort of does it all. And the interesting thing is, is I've gotten to see what this does to a lot of other people on retreat as well. And they not only go through insight stages and they don't only get jhanas, but they also have all this archetypal, energetic, chakral, you know, um, entity, whatever magical stuff. And they can draw things and they can, you know, you know, the, the classic jing ball where you make a glowing ball between your hands and do stuff like that. And, and you know, so it's, it's doing all these different things. Um, and some interesting healings and other weird gifts that are hard to, you know, and then realms, you know, like all of a sudden, uh, I recently had someone on, on, who was doing a retreat here and their retreat was mostly about realms. They would just be on the cushion and all of a sudden they would find themselves in a totally different space. So, and I think of realms and out-of-body travel as different things because their entrance and exit are different. Like, so in out-of-body travel, you have the classic lift out and then the snap back and maybe some buzz and some weird, you know, things that can happen when you snap back, right? Whereas realms, all of a sudden you're just in a fully formed space like this, but it's something else, right? And who knows what, what might be there, what the rules might be, but it has more of that sort of dream rule kind of vibe to it, but it's fully immersive. And, and then all of a sudden you're sort of phase out in your back. So it doesn't have the, the jump out and the snap back and it doesn't have the sort of frenetic quality that a travel sometimes can um anyway so like so it does you know so it does these things that they talk about in these old texts that most people dismiss you know and you can see entities or interact with them or hear them or you know all this these things and you can anyway so it kind of does everything and that's why i keep doing it because i and then it, it also seems to have this weird logic to it of it will sort of show you aspects of the thing that you didn't even know you needed. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, thank you, Fire Casino, for tuning my, pre you know, of all those possible options, something will be showing up that usually is very related to what would be valuable for you at the time. So it seems. People say things like this about ayahuasca as well, in that same, that same kind of way. Um, so that it seems to give you something you needed, even if you didn't know you needed it. Not that that always necessarily goes well. This is, by the way, I should mention right here, this is not entirely safe at all, period. Just by way of fair warning, this is deep, strange stuff. 
Um, and we should probably talk about that at some point, but read all the warnings in the Fire Casino site, listen to the things we talk about, but this can get super weird and people can get super bizarre and unstable. So the, the, the best, and I, I should have said this earlier in case people have already, you know, tuned off and got the first part, but not the second part, that like a highly concentrated mind is basically like, you know, like an acetylene torch an acetylene torch directed properly can cut through steel and do amazing things. An acetylene torch directed improperly could cut off your arm just as easily. And so just be careful with a highly concentrated mind. I mean, to, you know, I, I don't recommend this to everybody at all, like particularly in the doses we're doing. Um, you got to have your psychologically trip, trip, your psychology trip vary together, I think, to have a good chance of this going well, but it's like mountain climbing. You know, even the best mountain climbers have accidents. Nobody says mountain climbing is entirely safe, even for the best. And this is that, you know, this is high adventure meditation. Um, proceed with caution, have friends. Like when I did a solo fire casino retreat, I had two friends, you know, on call. That was um, 2017, something like that at the beach. And it was a 17 day retreat. And I had two friends on call who knew this territory and who knew me that were there in case I needed a spotter, in case I felt like I was starting to get out of specs and needed someone to ground down with. You know, and I've done this a lot, and I think of myself as a, as a sane practitioner, but e even, you know, that, uh, you know, it's like you, you want to have safety ropes uh, when you're climbing, even if you're a super good climber and know the cliff face well. So, yeah. So anyway, you want to talk, I don't know if that'd be an interesting topic to talk about. What are your thoughts on that? You've done some some intensive practices and visualizations and things. You want to chime in here? Yeah, I think it would be interesting to talk about the dangers um, before we do pivot into that. And, you know, I have some specific questions about that. And certainly, you know, let's let's do that for sure. Um, you mentioned um, the powers or these strange experiences. You mentioned out of body experiences and so on. Is it possible to uh, perhaps exhaustive list would be uh, would perhaps be too much to go back through that history? and just point to powers as they developed or showed up, or at least experiences of a powersy kind of direction. I'm going to ask you to validate uh, scientifically uh, some supernatural abilities or something like this. But you mentioned out-of-body experience. I'm curious, actually, how that happened, what, um, what initiated it, and how that how you developed that over, if you have over the years you, you you implied that you've had longer more elaborate out-of-body experiences since that first one which is quite good yeah so well, actually that wasn't my first one my first one happened when i was a teenager and it happened spontaneously um around the same time as my first arising and passing away remember my con you know the bright white light consciousness exploding all over the room tons of energy buzzing all through my body super alert particles and and stuff and then shortly thereafter i traveled out of my body for the first time that was and that that one I was around 14 or 15 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. That was the classic one. I lifted out. I saw my body there on the bed. I floated through the wall, you know, of the sort of garage kind of room that I stayed in then at that time um, in Chapel Hill. And then I saw my dad's Subaru, which was sitting there parked outside. And then I was like, uh, and then I snapped back into my body and then I was paralyzed and there was the buzz and it was super weird. And then I was, you know, awake. And so um, that was my first one. And um, so, but the, the first time I actually jumped out off the cushion, which was something I had been trying to do for a while, was on that retreat where all of a sudden I had the, the, the power of concentration that 
makes everything like that that you want to do just easier, right? So, you know, the, if the basic formula is power up, which for me, I've realized really to get there takes, you know, a hundred-ish hours, like a hundred-ish hours and seven to 12 days or something. Um, this recent retreat I did was a little lower dose. So it took me a little longer time to get into the deeper stuff, a little lower dose per day. But let's say a hundred hours in a short period of time, just as a rough metric, you know, power up, get to the territory, you know, with like the control, you've got color control, you've got image control, you can move stuff, you can navigate it cleanly, you've got the open expansiveness, you've got the, you know, certain materials that are easier to work with, and then intend. So that's the basic formula, power up, get to the landmarks, intend, and just keep setting it up and keep intending and see what happens. That's the basic formula for all of this stuff. And uh, so, you know, on that retreat, what I did is I powered up, you know, just by being on retreat and then doing the white casino um, just off my eyelids. I wasn't using an external object that time. I don't know why. And then intend. And so the intention for that specific um, travel, which is a very vivid one, and I still remember it well, I was sitting there and I had been doing this for hours and hours and hours that day. I was trying to lift out and I was trying to lift out and I was totally overpowering it. And eventually at the, by, at the end of the day, it, it's, you know, it's, I don't know how, what time of the night it is. It's, it's getting later at night and I'm getting tired and I'm still just sitting there. You know, I've been taking breaks, walking and then, you know, I'd walk for just a little bit and then go back to sitting just to give my body a rest because the pain would get too much. And then um, I'd walk for a little bit, go back to sitting and then, you know, sit as long as I could and walk for a little bit, go back to sitting, sit as long as I could, you know, and then I'm like totally exhausted by this point. And of course, I've basically given up as those who know these kinds of stories well will realize that's the, the setup for that, of course, that it happened, um, which is going to be the theme, by the way, of uh, my next retreat, if we get to that. Um, sorry, this this retreat, I just did if we get to that. But anyway, and then um, all of a sudden, there was this uh, playing card. Um, and this playing card appeared to me, and then it spun off sort of that way. And somehow I spun off after it. And then all of a sudden I was out of my body. I was in the room. There was a bunch of, I was, you know, uh, the, my body was sitting here and I was kind of up here. And then, but the room was very different and it had these holes in it that went to vast space. And there were a bunch of entities around me of various um, colors, mostly yellow and orange and red. And they were sort of blobular and they seemed slightly threatening or like not very nice. And then there was, um, and then there was this sort of kind of, sphere thing and i was like what and it was all very shuddery and then like hard snap back back in body very buzzy and then that sort of weird slightly um kind of disorienting feel of being back in and having been out i always find you know it's funny i find traveling often kind of disorienting i usually feel a little bit weird or slightly out of sorts back in this realm for some hours afterwards like it takes a little bit to fully reconnect i don't know that's that's just me um, anyway, your experience with out-of-body traveling, you want to talk about that at all? Have you had some? Rather impoverished, I'm afraid. Okay. It's, it sounds to me like you've become really quite facile at this. No. So I would not consider myself a facile out-of-body traveler. I'm a tourist, not a native. So can I go there? Have I gone there? Have I had a reasonable number of travels? Yes. Do I have great control or anything? No. Um, but by that, you know, I should also mention by that time I had downloaded a PDF copy of Alan um, Guyton's Traveling. I think it's called Traveling an Accidental Expert's Guide to How to Leave Your Body or something like that. And 
that's actually a very good book. It's funny, it's quirky, it's quick, it's to the point, and it has some good instructions in it. So if you're interested in trying this, he's, he's a native. I'm not a native, I'm a tourist. And you should just read his instructions because they're great. It just also happens to be published on the same people that publish my book, Eon Books, highly recommended. Anyway, thank you, Oliver, Rathbone, and Cecily, and everybody. Very interesting indeed. What about divine eye, divine ear, these sorts of things? These are some of the other powers uh, that you mentioned earlier in the interview associated with high states of concentration in Vasudhi Maga and Moody Maga uh, accounts. Uh, what, how did that sort of thing unfold as your uh, fire casino journey unfolded? Well, so the divine eye and the divine ear would be what, uh, you know, uh, a sort of materialistic muggly type might call visual and auditory hallucinations. And the Buddhists would call divine eye and divine ear, some of them, at least the old Theravada ones. I'm not quite sure what the Tibetans call this or the other strains. Um, and the Zen kids would definitely call illusion or moksha or whatever they would call it. So they would be sort of dismissive as they tend to be of powers and strange experiences like that. And which is an interesting and sometimes very useful perspective. So different ways of looking at this, but it's basically anything where you're seeing or hearing something near or far, as they say in the old texts, that you couldn't ordinarily see or hear. And so I'll, I'll give a curious example of this that happened to me, one of my first ones. I don't know why I keep mentioning these early ones. I've had plenty later, but somehow the, the first time these things happen in that kind of way, it's always a little striking. You know, it's like, whoa, wait a second. So this is also at Gaia House, and uh, which is just a delightful retreat and a great place. And I really appreciated my time there. I was very thankful for everyone. That's a beautiful spot. The trees, some of the big old trees. Oh my gosh. Anyway, um, so I, I was doing this meditation retreat there. Um, and then all of a sudden I was, I was on the cushion and all of a sudden I found myself could almost see it, but could definitely hear it, this living room. And there was this living room um, where there were these two uh, British women watching television, sitting in what looked like old Victorian style um, chairs. Um, it, and very old decorations. And they were just talking about what was on the television and what they were seeing to each other. It was a totally ordinary scene, but it was seen and heard with that profound sense that I was seeing and hearing something real. Now, so there was no obvious meaning or profound content or anything about it. It's not that profound an experience um, in terms of the specifics, but the fact of it was like, okay, wait a second. And it felt, I'm not the first to have said this, obviously, like a radio had been tuned. Like all of a sudden there are these kind of, you can somehow tune the radio and I didn't know how to tune the radio, but somehow the radio had just tuned to these two people sitting there discussing the TV, the telly. And um, they, uh, anyway, and then that didn't last for very long. I don't know, probably, I don't know how many seconds, not for very long. And then I was sort of back in the room and I was like, okay, there we go. So this is a thing, right? And so if your concentration gets stronger, or sometimes even if it doesn't, you might occasionally have these moments. And as you get better at this, you can attempt to tune this. And that's the whole, now we're suddenly talking the realms of remote viewing experiments and the CIA and all that, if you want to go there. And that's also a thing. So if you're, if you're you know, again, power up, um, you can't, it, it's better if you care about these things, but they can happen spontaneously as well when you're powered up and, you know, intend, and then let it go and see what happens. And if you do that again and again and again, 
some people, for some reason, will be able to do this and other people won't. And I have no idea why that's true. We could hand wave and say karma, which just means causality or conditioning. Oh, okay, sounds fine. And what experientially differentiates that sort of an experience for you from, say, a daydream? Now, I'm not attempting to say it's a daydream, sure. uh, nor, nor am I asking you to prove it is or isn't, or I'm just saying, well, you've had a daydream, I'm sure, and, and you've had this experience. What is the difference experientially to you? Yeah, so that's a great question. So as anybody who's had a really strong daydream knows, they can have a quality of sort of immersion. They can have a quality of um, emotional impact, right? So daydreams often have emotional content to them. And you can sort of feel that in your body. So they have this sense of interactivity with sort of this material consensus space. Um, and obviously daydreams can get quite strong. What was different about this one was A, and if someone wanted to look at all of this on something of a spectrum, I couldn't possibly fault them in some ways. It, this just seems like a more extreme version of a daydream. In other ways, it's kind of its own thing. So for example, when, you know, if you say to someone, do you hear voices? Well, anybody who's being honest will hear the voice in their head that appears to be their own voice. And it has a subtle auditory component to it. And if you really tune into it, it can kind of get a little bit louder. But if you ask people who hear voices, what the experience of hearing a voice is like, um, that is a different thing. So it, liter it, it feels and sounds like someone external to you talking to you in exactly the same way I'm talking to you now. And so in some ways it's shades of gray different, but at some point it becomes categorically sort of different using black and white versus shades of gray. So for example, I've only heard voices a very few times um, but one of them actually was, was when I went on a, a fire casino retreat and we actually even had, hadn't even started the retreat. And I went up to the, the bedroom I was going to be staying and I la lay down, I, you know, I, I'm, we've just arrived and I, I was tired from the drive. Um, this is in France in Normandy at the Chateau de Buffalo, a beautiful spot to rent for a retreat, by the way, very nice people and absolutely gorgeous place and weirdly inexpensive, though kind of tricky to get to, but, um, yeah, picturesque in, in just, anyway. So uh, so I lay down on the bed and all of a sudden I hear and feel a woman's voice like she was whispering in my ear and went, KD. I have no idea what this means. I have no idea what that means. But it was, it was not like a voice in my head or a daydream or whatever. It literally felt like I could feel the air of her breath on my skin and hear the voice as if someone was right there talking to me, external to me. I couldn't have predicted the content. It doesn't make any sense. I have no idea. So at some point, things like that can kind of cross a line and go, well, that really feels like something else. If So if that's helpful, these powers, the experiences feel like something else, just like a realm, a full-on realm is as immersive as this, whereas a daydream is immersive in some way and can be compelling, but it's not exactly like sitting here, you know, where you can touch the microphone and, you know, something where realms are. And this is in that category. And you're already hinting there at some of the possible 
dangers, which we'll come to a little bit later, of these sorts of practices. Not hinting, explaining in some ways, right? Right, exactly. So if, yeah. if, if hearing voices and or seeing things that other people um, don't see as being there, although there are ways to do this collectively, there are times when people collectively have, you know, group experiences. That's a whole nother topic, which then becomes even more mind bending and paradigm bending. But yeah, if, if you're not the kind of person who could um, handle hearing a voice well or seeing some strange thing, don't do this because that's the territory. And, and even who think that they are and will be, you know, that doesn't mean you necessarily will be. And there might be things you could see or hear that you could handle and maybe things you could see or hear that suddenly you can't or ha can't handle skillfully. And so that's why it's good to have friends around, good to have your morality trip together, good to have a healthy dose of skepticism. So I can describe these experiences, but like it, becoming fascinated with these experiences, particularly hearing voices, particularly commands and, and messages and, and stuff like that. I know a lot of people who have gone badly wrong down all kinds of rabbit holes buying the content, right? Luckily, for whatever strange reason, when I get this content, it's almost always like incomprehensible or meaningless. There are a few exceptions, like when the fire goddess screamed at me, become a king of fire. Okay, well, that seemed to have some meaning for me. But, you know, <laughs> what does that even mean? And how do you totally take that seriously? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I think we called that story in our episode that, yeah. in which we talked about the occult. We focused on the occult and magic and so on. I think you, you told that story. It's very interesting indeed. Right. So another point, I suppose, biographical point that seems relevant here is these group retreats that you've done. You mentioned some of your retreats have been solo, but you've also organized with your circle of friends group retreats specifically to dive into these fire casinos. And that's afforded you, you mentioned, not only... Uh, reference points from your own experiences, but also well, hearing how other people are, are are moving through these things and even coining together certain terms like the Merck. Uh, trying or to the screens or whatever, as we tried to come up with a common language that would just allow us to, to just, you know, a shorthand, a technical working lexicon to help us explain these things because we seem to need more terms, right? It's just there weren't enough terms in the old books that really kind of got at the phenomenology and the various obvious reproducible phases yeah, and possibilities. And Right. And there are field recordings on firecasino.org of these in-retreat discussions. You recorded them and uploaded them. So you, you can actually hear this, this inner circle discussion as you're working this stuff out. Very interesting indeed. Could you say something about those retreats, um, how you run those retreats? Um, would, could we expect to see you sitting at the front of the room dispensing teachings? Of course, I know that's not how you do it. So I'm sort of <laughs> not how we do it. Yeah. But how, how do you do it? Um, what what's the uh, setup there? Who do you recruit for that? And what have you learned from going deep into this practice in particular uh, in a group context? Yeah, sure. Thank you. That That is an interesting thing. And that's an interesting bit of tech and stuff that we sort of innovated and continue to sort of iterate and innovate on. So as we learn more, you know, like whatever I describe now, like you know, take it and tweak it to be what you want it to be. I don't know this is necessarily the best way to do this. This is just what we've been doing. Um, but essentially the pattern is idea. Hey, it'd be cool to have a fire casino retreat. Hey, friends who I think have strong enough concentration who I would want to be weird with. So like for, the, for people who have done psychedelics, who would you take a strong psychedelic with for two weeks? That's the question you need to ask yourself when 
inviting people to a fire casino retreat. Basically the same criteria. So these people need to be relatively sane. You need to know them. You need to trust them. You need to have a sense that these people have the capacity to handle themselves skillfully in the face of the weird. And not just that, but potentially have reserve capacity, not only to be handling their own practice, but be able to help others should someone be having a hard or weird moment, because those occur on these retreats by way of full disclosure, right? So you need people there with, with trip-sitting skills who can trip-sit while they're tripping. Does that make sense? And if that gives people who have done those kinds of things, I'm not I'm not advocating for or against psychedelics. You know, if these are illegal in your country, whatever. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, if you're trying to think about who you want to bring on these retreats, that's my best advice to think in that kind of way, and um, to be to make sure these retreats we're not doing psychedelics. In case anybody then misinterpreted that, we're doing what I call the pedestrian path rather than the paisley path. So the pedestrian path of walking there the slow way, where it takes you know you know tens to hundreds of hours to get there, um, versus the few seconds to hour you know or whatever it takes for some substance. So this is the slow path, but this is also kind of like you know if if psychedelics are scuba diving, this is learning to be a fish because you're building it up on your own wiring. So kind of a different thing. And I have a lot of dedicated psychonauts who come on these retreats and at the end of them say, wow, that was cleaner, better, more integratable, more controllable, more profound, deeper, you know, not that psychedelics might not be still interesting for them, but, you know, anyway. So, okay, so that's the first thing is selection. That's the critical thing. That's the first most important thing you have to get right because occasionally we've gotten it wrong and wow, you know, you run into trouble. So um, get that right first. The second thing is find a venue, like, you know, figure out what people can afford. Everybody has different social demographics and capacities for money. We do, we, um, the way we do this, nobody's making any money on these things. So we just figure out what, what are the logistics? What is the house cost? Can everybody afford that? Does that work? Occasionally people have subsidized each other because we want someone who doesn't have as much money to come on the retreat and someone will pay more and maybe they get the master bedroom, but you know, someone who can't pay nearly as much gets there. So we figure it out among friends as friends would help friends, you know, because we're, we're friends. And then um, the next thing is, you know, make sure, make sure the location has, um, uh, you know, access to food because you're going to need food and that is quiet, you know, and that is affordable and that is going to be conducive to a retreat and that the people there will even let you retreat, like they'll let you burn candles or whatever, because a whole lot of places won't. Um, you might even want to discuss what you're going to be doing with the people who, you know, own the Airbnb or whatever place you rent or find, or if someone has their own place, right? So the recent retreat we we did here, it was just, you know, here at Hurricane Ranch. And um, it's just three of us because we don't have a lot of space like some of these big houses we've rented. Um, and then, you know, my advice is if you can afford it, rent a big old beautiful house in the countryside somewhere that has a that magical old beautiful vibe if you like those kinds of aesthetics. Uh, and um, then figure out how everybody's going to get there, you know, make sure everybody's got his phone numbers, find dates that work for everybody, and then, you know, do your retreat. We've tended to keep the, all the well, not tended to, the books have always been totally open. So everybody gets to see where all the money goes. We split grocery costs and just, you know, pull all the grocery receipts and then figure out, you know, what, what it all costs and just pay that. And then, so the money is all just clean and even. We're just paying for the facilities and transport as it costs. And everybody gets to see all of that. So I think that's also important. And then nobody's making any money on these things. And this is co-organized along among friends. This is peers retreating with peers friends retreating with friends as its fundamental vibes. So it's not me sitting up there dispensing wisdom. We all go into this together. Um, 
and then we talk, which is the other interesting thing. So this practice is powerful enough that yes, if you went totally silent, is it likely to be a little more powerful? Yeah. But we talk at meals. We sometimes talk in between. People find each other and they talk. And then the main meditation room is silent, except for logistics during setup and takedown. And if there's something that goes horribly wrong with the fireplace or some weird thing, like, you know, we, we talk to, to handle little stuff like that. Otherwise, the main meditation room is generally silent. The other thing um, we tend to do is um, uh, the, the schedule is like meals are scheduled and we generally just rotate how we cook. Um, you know, and some people might like to clean because they don't like to cook and some people like to cook, but they don't like to clean. And some people may have other duties and we just see what feels good to everybody and who are the cooks and who are going to be the cleaners and who are, you know, and who feels good about all that. And then we just figure that out. And um, we tend to accommodate whatever the most stringent diet is, you know, if people are vegetarian, vegan or whatever, then, you know, we tend to, to um, gravitate towards that to make sure everybody has good food to eat, tend to eat well on these retreats because people often, there's usually enough people in the group who like to show off their cooking skills. We tend to eat pretty darn well. <laughs> um, and then there's no schedule other than meals. So in between times, you practice or you don't. You titrate the dose to what you need. You sit when you feel like you need to sit. You walk when you feel like you need to walk. You go outside when you need to go outside. You do yoga or whatever when you feel like you need to do yoga. This is very much a retreat for adults. We assume everybody there is into practice and they can moderate their own dose and their own needs. Some people might be doing, you know, three hour long, you know, runs with no breaks and other people are doing shorter cycles, 15 minutes, walk a bit, you know, and, and that's all totally fine. So that's all very much like finding your own rhythm. Sometimes we don't even have clocks, you know, there. So if you want to really feel into the rhythm, the people back in the day didn't have clocks. They just sort of looked at the sun, got a sense of how the day was going. Um, and that's a really interesting thing to do. Um, other things about this, we tend to um, cruise in lounge chairs. So we tend to look for places with really cushy chairs that can lean back, think lazy boys and, and you know, um, cushy recliners like you would watch a movie or TV in or take a nap in. Um, because uh, the goal of this is not to be all macho and how long I can sit with my painful body. We've realized that if you really want to go into the colors and not have the body and the pain and all that be distract you and be able to do some of the very long runs, you know, hours and hours potentially that get you into the more subtle, refined, dreamy, expansive, deep, far, whatever you want to call it, territory. Um, you know, we found that that lounge chairs can be super useful for that. And so, and then we, you know, help each other out. And there's usually differential skill sets. So some people may have done more of this or less of this, and the people who have done more or less help each other out. But there's usually somebody, you know, at least a few people who have some reasonable psychological expertise. They may be counselors or internal family systems or whatever. Some people who might be body workers and healers, definitely great people to bring along on these retreats. If you have friends like that, highly recommended, um, you know, because people can run into stuff that responds well to that. And so, um, so pick a good mix of people with skills who can support each other. And then, yeah, we just talk about practice and share tips and tricks and go through this remarkable journey together. And it can be totally awesome if you get the right group and people have the sense to keep their wits about them and be nice. So does that give you a sense of the setup? Any questions about that? Yeah, that's a, that's great. That's sort of a, a DIY kit list for, yeah. you know, the other thing I would highly recommend is the dose. So because there's something organic about fire casino retreats and there's this thing we call the Merc, you mentioned it earlier, but 
usually the first few days, people are getting some cool stuff. They're getting images and they're getting some colors and the dot gets brighter and whatever. And then usually after some number of days, and I don't mean to script anybody, this is just everybody I've known who has ever done this has noticed this. All of a sudden the colors go away, the dots turning black, you don't get much visuals. It's sort of staticky and kind of wider, but broader, but more confusing and it's not organizing and it's frustrating. And that's when all the dark nighty feelings start to come up, fear, paranoia, frustration, misery, you know, regrets and, you know, ang anger about stuff and memories. And, and so people enter this period somewhere around, you know, from around day two to three, and then it sort of changes by the day. You may be more or less murky at various points in the day, and it can last a week or sometimes more um, as, a, as a theme that happens. And then usually as the retreat goes on, like the Merc will start, you know, initially it's showing up later on in the day, then it starts showing up in the middle of the day, then usually the beginning of the day. And then as it starts showing up in the beginning of the day, it usually gets shorter and shorter. And then at some point people get out to equanimity generally, not that they might still not go through quick murky periods during a sit or the early sits of the day or something, but there's this sort of progression. It's, it's not linear at all, but the general trajectory is to, to be non-murky to get murky and then to get equanimous. So if you think about like A and P, dark night, equanimity, it kind of follows that general pattern. And the murk can be sort of challenging. And the other thing is if you leave retreat murky, it is not good. You can leave the retreat murky and you didn't get out to equanimity and you can feel weird strange, reactive. We've had a number of people who showed up and, oh, I just want to do a week of fire casino retreat. I can't take the time off work. I don't recommend this. You can do it, but I don't recommend it. Um, our experiments have shown that in general, if you leave retreat murky, not only did you not see the other side of the murk, which is where the cool stuff is, so you didn't really appreciate what these practices can lead to, but it also can bleed back into daily life. So do a long enough retreat, which from my point of view is at least two weeks, because, you know, for let's say it takes 10 to 12 days for someone to power up, particularly the first time, um, or even later times, right? So I, I still, my entrance price has gotten a little shorter, but it's still, there's a real organic price to be paid to get to the high end. There's, you know, there's threshold effects to this where all of a sudden, oh, there's the massive, brilliant iridescence out past the Merc that I can craft into cool three-dimensional plastic. And, you know, we have these terms anyway. So there's the white and gold. There's the star field. There's the, you know, what, whatever. There's the portals. There's the, you know, so... Anyway, so, and if you don't do that, then you're going to have paid this massive entrance price for maybe negative effects, right? And so I, I think 14 days minimum, I really like 17 to 21 days. That's about my sweet spot. I've done a month retreat. That seemed a little long to me. And there's actually this weird phenomenon called kicked out. So kicked out is where you've, you've got the initial thing, you go through the Merc, you get to the super cool stuff. And then if you keep going, a lot of people will suddenly just be kicked out where all of a sudden it's just done. And you're like, I got nothing. I sit and I've got nothing and I feel fine. And I don't know why I'm on retreat. Like, I just feel like I want to go back to my life. And like, this seems done. It's the strangest thing. So the sweet spot between leave retreat murky and getting kicked out, I think is about 17 to 21 days for a lot of people. But again, you're also going really high dose. You definitely leave yourself some integration days. Because I can tell you coming back into the world after this, like the silence, the quiet, the visuals can be pretty harsh and weird sometimes. So you want some integration days, at least a day for every week you were on retreat where you're talking to people, but not a lot. You don't have heavy responsibilities. You're not working a heavy load. You're not, you know, you can sort of, you know, ease yourself back in as the brain readjusts to the ordinary world. Um, yeah. So other things I recommend about this um, that are important qualifiers. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. So you do have an off ramp uh, built in. Do you also have an on ramp first day or two uh, kind of light schedule of getting used to the place and then last day or two also de-escalating or you're, you're shaking your head. So you hit the ground running, do you? Um, it, you know, it totally depends. I can understand why someone might ramp up a little bit slowly if one wanted to. Sure. So the, the other thing is we've had some people who have occasionally gone on these retreats and done a much lower dose. So if we might be doing eight, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, you know, they might be doing somewhere between three and five or six hours a day, which is sort of, you know, not just on ramp slowly, but also staying lower dose. That is, and then they're playing on their phone and watching the news and like, you know, YouTube videos and wandering around and, you know, doing cooking and doing other stuff. That also works. It's just A, slower, B, less dramatic, but, you know, they might be getting effects on day 16 that we might be getting on day seven, eight. You know, so you can do the slower dose and you can ease into it gradually if for whatever reason you want to dip your toes quietly into the water. Yeah, lower, slower, definitely safer. Doesn't mean it's perfectly safe, but definitely safer, more integratable. And you can just kind of try it and see what happens. Just the, you know, you're going to get to the high end fancy stuff more slowly. Your Merck period might be less dramatic, but also longer. And you just have to have a tolerance for that, right? One of the tricks of these things is, you know, people hit the Merck and they're like, oh, this is broken. It doesn't work. I can't do this. I'm not a visual person. What the hell? All these people describing all these colors and I've just got static and garbage, you know, like, you know, like. So getting people through the Merck. And so if you're going to do a lower dose, you got to have a capacity slog for more days, right? Because your Merck phase will likely be longer. There is an entrance price, as far as we can tell, that just takes actually doing the hours. So you could do that. And then like the retreat I actually just did, um, I was technically on retreat for three weeks. I started backing down about day 16. So I did kind of start pulling down because I, I didn't have more integration days built in after the retreat properly. And I had to go straight back into all the meetings for the EPRC and emergence benefactors and long days of computer work and, and all that stuff. So I started powering down before the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a really good idea because I've had times when I didn't, you know, I went straight from high dose fire casino retreat to long plane flight back from the UK, straight into work in the ER the next day. Oh my God. <laughs> Like I felt feverish. I literally felt like I had the flu after an hour of work and I was headachy and trying not to be irritable. And it's like, oof, you know, so. You know, in terms of integration, and then I would like to get onto the dangers um, in, and then your retreat. In terms of integration, Shinzen Young, meditation teacher, talks about four possibilities, a sort of nice, a nice pithy way of, of, of thinking about it. Aftershock, afterglow, both or neither. <laughs> and I think those those are perhaps self-explanatory. Um, yeah, after... and we've seen all of those after these retreats. Right. It's usually going to be one or the other or both. So what kind of things have you seen, not only yourself, but now we're including perhaps your your whole co your, your cohort of fire cassinis. Uh, what have you, what sort of things have you seen in terms of the integration, um, aftershock, afterglow, both, et cetera? What, what things, have, what have people done? What, what stories of warning or advice can you share with us from you or your cohort? Yeah, great thoughts. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is aftershocks, as I'm prone to talk about the dark side first. I want to make sure people know going in. We had one retreat of about nine or 10 people where a third of them basically broke up with their long-term partners on leaving the retreat. Woof. So actually, a number of them ended up getting back together and things, but like, like... It, 
it can be destabilizing and changing. This is not, you know, this is not lightweight stuff. You're rewriting the code while the operating system is running and in very profound and altering ways. So this is not, you know, if you think, oh, it's it's like tripping, but I just will sort of get high and come down and have a good time. That is unlikely to be true. This is transformative. Again, you're becoming a fish. You're not a scuba diver and you're building this on your own power and your own wiring. And it's going to change you. And we can't entirely predict how it will change you because it's, and we've seen a lot of variability and we don't know all the predisposing factors for why that's going to be true. So you need to go into this knowing you're doing something structural as people, you know, people come out of these retreats and say, my visual field is transformed. And they'll say that for months or years later, I see differently. I appreciate colors. I feel like the world is brighter. I had one person say, I felt like I've never seen anything in my life in comparison to this. You know, how did I go around not recognizing the unbelievable beauty that is the visual world? And those effects can linger. And it's not just the visual field. It's a lot of stuff. So this is like, that's the first important thing to say. This is not recreational. This is structural. And you don't know what those structural effects are going to be for you. Um, I can tell you that, like I mentioned that, you know, intense retreat, that was the Tower of Halbar retreat where we rented this very Harry Potterish medieval defensive tower. Um, the the Toria Bar, as they called it in Scotland, is absolutely brilliant place, except cold and dank and but awesome in that magical kind of way, if you want a tower to do your retreat in, you know, and, um, but when I came back, I had three weeks of working in the ER where I felt Within uh, within an hour of the start of every shift, I felt feverish. I felt headachey. I felt like I had the flu. I felt energetically totally off, and that that went on for three weeks. And that was actually the beginning of my like, I've got to get out of emergency medicine thing. So this had structural career effects for me. And then it took me about a uh, you know I don't know that that was the beginning of that. It took me I think about two years to figure out how in the world then um, I would actually pull that off not an easy thing to extract yourself from uh, a lot of the aspects of that. And so, and then just tremendous luck, really. Um, so yeah, like this is, so those are some of the aftershocks. And on retreats, we've had people go really paranoid, moderately psychotic, you know, have homicidal ideation, um, become incredibly projective, reactive. You know, one person, you know, screamed in a bathroom for four hours, um, you know, like, other people I know who have done this had, you know, people just uncontrollable crying, you know, that, that have, you know, went on for hours and hours and hours and, and um, un inconsolable. We've had, you know, and, and very strange effects and people can get fascinated by the weird. The weird can be super fascinating and the content can be super fascinating. And the fact of having what seem like powers can be super fascinating. So the, you, you can get weird highs where people are like not sleeping and super incredible and, you know, synthesizing in their brain it looks like kind of a mania sort of thing. And then you can get really dark, really altered stuff, you know, demons and creepy stuff. And, and then, and some people handle that well, and some people don't, and some people just get very, very bizarre. And then the question is, you know, and this is a thing where the bizarre, as long as it's relatively benign is something we're looking in some ways to cultivate, but it's a slippery slope, right? It's like high adventure. Again, you know, if you're, if you're doing ice climbing, you know, it could be absolutely beautiful and, and eerie and majestic, but yeah, it's not safe. Right. So, so this is that. So that's some of the downside things and relationship disruption, career changes. Yeah. That's been almost par for the course. And then in terms of afterglows, like yeah, amazing transformations of the visual system is widely reported. 
um, people getting paths, right? So that's about as afterglowy as you get. So I, I know a number of people who claim I'm not diagnosing pro or con. This is just what they say that suddenly they are able to cycle, they get fruitions, they have, they understand the path, they review, like they get all the stuff, they get the upgrades that seem to last for, you know, they seem to be permanent structural changes align in their life. They were one way and now they're another way, and this other way is better. You know, like that, you know, they describe those kinds of things. Again, I'm not validating or critiquing, I'm just describing. So and, you know, some actually, uh, one person I know who claims high path, you know, like, you know, fourth path, got it on a fire casino retreat. And this is someone who had a lot of retreat history, been doing this for many, many years, but um, so not a, a lightweight, but, you know, and again, pe people freak out about these kinds of claims. I just passing this on that that's what they think they've done. And, you know, they're not someone who's public about this or looking for their very, very private person. Um, so anyway. And I have a number of those kinds of stories. And the other thing is, as a platform for insight, this has also been remarkable. So one of the other themes we've seen is people who power up on Fire Casino and then turn it to insight. So I know some people who have done that and they got really powered up and then they started deconstructing the sense of this being anything other than it, the sense of a separate watcher, the sense of intentions leading to actions, you know, rather than coming from a will or just arising naturally, the mental impressions being an observer debunking. And now they've got the horsepower because they've got this incredible clarity of mind that these exercises that seemed impossible or unsustainable or vague or confusing, or yeah, I can kind of see that. Now they can just see it because they've got this incredibly bright, wieldly mind that can then do that. So that's another one of these cool benefits for people. Um, uh, and the other thing is I should also mention, not everybody gets good visuals and powers, but sometimes might get amazing effects anyway. You know, uh, one friend of mine just talks about like, you know, um, you know, pixel rain. They were just seeing what they call pixel rain. It's, you know, rains of pixels and static and stuff. And yet somehow the process was incredibly transformative for them um, in, in these amazing ways. Um, so that can be some of the afterglowy stuff. People can report, you know, and suddenly they have access to genres at levels of depth they never had before. Or even, even if they can't do it when they get off retreat and the concentration power fades, they at least know it's there, whereas before they didn't. They were like, oh my golly, incredible depths of stillness, vastness, you know, tranquility, bliss that they they had no concept was possible. And they thought people were just kind of making up or exaggerating. And now they're like, oh, wow, this is actually a doable thing. And so um, those are some of the afterglows we've seen or incredible paradigm shifts. So the other thing is you can't, you know, it is very hard to have an experience where, you know, if the, the few people who have gotten to realms or the malleable and wieldly stage, as I call it, malleable, where suddenly everything is up for grabs and you can just intend reality changes, just like you would imagine if you were a master wizard or something and you just wanted to transform things. The, the, the people who get to those kinds of stages recognize in terms of a deep paradigmatic way when people say this is all constructed or this is all an illusion or this is all in a good way, not in the, in the weird way, although that might be possible too. Um, this is all something that might be malleable or variable. Like they, they get something about the fact that this appears to be uh, you know, a created space, perhaps in a meat brain somewhere, plus minus, you know, doesn't matter. But this seems to be a created space that the that is up for grabs in some very profound um, and maybe totally absolute kind of way. And that can be revelatory in terms of the relationship to all of experiences, not only dreams, but also this realm, and give not only an appreciation of it, and an appreciation of the power, the staggering power and relevance of intent and karma, 
um, but also a looseness and a lightness in terms of the way they hold this that can be psychologically incredibly transformative. And I've had other weird experiences. I don't know if I talked about the thing with the, the temporal karma god wizard tentacle thing, you know, that transformed, that gave me this weird sort of bedrock level of faith that's what's happening is the best that could happen, which sounds Panglossian for those who've read Candide, but um, still is psychologically unbelievably valuable, regardless of its apparently Pollyannish sort of sense. Not that there might be, not be incredible chaos and pain, but this is as good as it's going to get. And you know, and that everything is happening for some good reason, regardless of whether or not it's true, psychologically very valuable for my own practice. So those are some of the afterglows. And then we've had mixes of both, right? Where people had a, a mix of positive and actually a lot of people have a mix of both. So. You know, some something you said there um, reminds me of a genre of writing, which is uh, memoirs of occultists, you know? Yeah. One of the classic episodes in these memoirs is uh, the occultist is attempting to evoke some sort of being in Goetian or Enochian sort of style. And they also not safe. <laughs> yes. One would assume one would one would uh... assume somebody knew that already. But yes. yeah, anyway, go on. But hopefully, yeah, in case anyone wants to. <laughs> do that um and then the, the classic episode is always that they get they, you know they try and it doesn't work and then eventually it it works something happens they evoke some entity through those means and then the entity sort of saying here i am you know lord cthulhu of the underworld or something what do you want what did you call me for you rang and the and the uh, budding occultist suddenly realizes that they hadn't thought this far ahead and all that they attempted to do is get the thing there and then when faced with this uh, creature uh, they actually have nothing to ask it, and that can end somewhat badly for them sometimes, or, or at least it's a bit embarrassing. So, um, which leads me to uh, this question of intention and why. It's said to be useful in, in lucid dreaming practice to have a something you'd like to do when you lucid dream, or I even think of, um, is it Shannon Stein, one of the, uh, yeah, you're nodding, one of the uh, solo retreatants who who submitted a log to your fire casino site is and the uh, co-author on the fire casino book right shannon stein she had all kinds of it seems i'm recalling now having read it some some years ago but i think she was attempting to um engage in green tara practice or connect medicine to buddha tara. medicine buddha that's it yes yeah medicine buddha that's right and connect to medicine buddha that one up there there we go anyway yeah so she, it seemed, wanted to use the fire casino to get into those upper ends of concentration and then do her medicine Buddha practice and have some sort of contact or experience with her, with medicine Buddha, I presume associated pre with her previous medicine Buddha practice. So that, that was reading between the lines, you're nodding, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering what uh, role or use intention, intentionality has. Um, just simply exploring for its own sake, sure contacting uh, deep, more deeply with one's previous uh, deity yoga practice, whatever it might be, generation stage practice, medicine, Buddha, and so on, conjuring uh, things in an occult sense. What are this range of whys that you've, you've, uh, you and your cohort have come with, and how have they worked out? No, this is, this is actually a critical question. And so I should mention, when I was initially doing this, I was very intention heavy. 
I was going into for specific goals to explore specific powers, to have specific experiences, to travel out of body, to draw things in the air, to, you know, to experience profound meta, to exactly as you mentioned, to, you know, to not only get generation stage, but then completion stage of, you know, some empowerments I had been given that I couldn't visualize worth a squat until I got all powered up on fire casino. Right. And, and so, I, yes, it was that kind of stuff. And that was what I was doing. But then at some point, and, and I have a lot of friends who still do that. My ceremonial magic friends are like, you know, who have gone on um, these retreats have said, you really need a project like you, that you, that you get all powered up and then you need something you're trying to do because then you've got the juice. You should use it because then you can do these rituals or visualizations or things in a way that suddenly you're seeing and hearing and feeling this stuff, right? In a Harry Potter level magic, you know, which is not what most people's ritual magical experiences are like a lot of the time. Um, and mine weren't, you know, until I learned how to power up and then sometimes get into this stuff. So, so that's how I started. And I think starting there, if that's where people want to start is perfectly fine and reasonable, you know, um, and the ability intentions nowadays for me, it's, it changed though, are super useful if things start to go in weird directions, which sometimes they do tend to spin in weird directions. And then the question is, do you explore that? Or do you just say no? And, you know, and then you have to kind of make a judgment call as you navigate deeper into the weird territory of what, what's your tolerance level for like, okay, nope, uh -uh, time, time to pull back. So I think intentions you should keep in your toolbox as a safety measure, as a backing off, backing down, just saying no to some of these experiences. I think that's a critical component of this. But as I went along, I began to realize that sometimes Fire Casino was just giving me things that I wouldn't have known to ask for, that were better than anything I had thought to ask for. I didn't know about these things. I just had no idea. Some of the healings, some of the revelations, and even things that at the time I had no obvious appreciation of her lo logic for. My, my triangle retreat. I had one retreat that was all about triangles. It was just triangles, triangles, triangles. They were in the building. They were all over the place. And they suddenly became to be incredibly important in some kind of like mathematical geometrical, sacred geometry sort of way. It, it, it's very hard to explain. And even now my attempts would be, but it was somehow very important that that retreat happened. And why triangles? I don't know. And would I have asked for triangles? No, but that was like, anyway, but I'll just some other healing retreats that healed traumas and cleared stuff out and showed me things of beauty and showed me realms. Like I didn't really get the realm thing until realms just started showing up. Um, And so, uh, those kinds of things have convinced me now when I go on fire casino retreat, I might have a little project or a little thing or a little intention, but I largely just go in, power up and see what it does. And so every one of my fire casino retreats, while in some ways kind of the same of the arc of general, how the powers powering up goes, in other ways, they've all been very, very different in terms of when I was powering up. And then once I really got powered up, what the thematic content was like, this one was all about like heart and solar plexus chakras. Like that was the big party. That was where it wanted to go. It wanted to go into the body, into those centers, into whatever traumas or feelings were, were sort of held there. And that body keeps the score-ish, you know, um, trauma sensitive mindfulness kind of way. Um, and that became a lot of what was actually going on. I was not expecting that. I was thinking visuals would be cool and some other things. And a lot of those also happened, but um, that actually turned out to be incredibly important. And so I'm very, very grateful that the retreat went in that kind of way. 
when, but I wouldn't have known to ask for that because that was not what was going on before the retreat. And so I've learned to go in, yes, with intentionality and yes, with intentions to, to you know, keep things skillful, very important to keep things loving and kind and reasonable and balanced and all that. Um, but also to appreciate the gifts and to leave the space and to not just, you know, oh no, it needs to be here. Or the attention needs to be there. Or it needs to go this way, right? To give it to give it and the healing power of these techniques, the ability to go places and show me things I didn't know about. So if the, this, is that useful or interesting? Hmm. How successful uh, was Shannon in, in having that medicine Buddha? Not. No, I thought not, yeah. Yeah, but she got all kinds of other interesting gifts and insights. And so that's the funny thing. I've definitely had retreats where something I wanted to intend to do just definitely didn't happen, but other cool things did. Okay. So that's the funny thing. As you get deeper into the Merkin, into this thing, you realize this is something of a negotiation. <laughs> this is a conversation. This is a dance. This is not command and control in that sort of, I bind you demon, I summon or whatever. Like, can it have aspects or moments that, you know, that's, that's the, the deep end creepy stuff, right? So, um, but like, can it have, you know, like, and like intending, like I had a lot of times where I just said, I really want to do a bunch of loving kindness practice, right? That's skill, the skillful good stuff, right? So where I wanted to do a bunch of loving kindness practice. And so of course I would do that. Or I just really want some bodily genre right now to chill out or expand. Okay. So inclining in those directions is perfectly reasonable. Um, but, um, yeah, so but it's still a negotiation because sometimes even when you ask for things, something else will show up and then you have to figure out how you want to relate to those opportunities and or those distractions, depending on how you think of them. Mm -hmm. And it's not always clear which is best. And that's part of the mystery and ambiguity of these things, right? And that's part of the fun. I think of, I think of the deep end of this kind of practice as stepping into an, a jungle on an alien world at twilight that nobody has stepped into before. You may know what jungles are like, and you may know what twilight is like, and you may have your wits about you and your set of tools, but you're suddenly in a negotiation with whatever occurs and whatever you run into. And, and you know, and you can try to walk out and you may know the way back, but that doesn't mean you're not in it. You're in it. I think to some that sounds absolutely terrifying and to others, Utterly compelling. <laughs> yes, and that I and I have the same reaction. Maybe both for others again, <laughs> you know, aftershock, afterglow, or, or both or neither. So yeah. um, let we let's just address the elephant, an elephant in the room, or let's address something we've been hinting at, which is. Can you see uh, the elephant? Are you powered up? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I'm not seeing it right now. Maybe you can. <laughs> I bind you, elephant. <laughs> God. No, no, no. No need to bind the elephant. He's friendly. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, which is, uh, well. Uh, Witches, yes, and warlocks. <laughs> Sorry. Mental, uh, mental health. Uh, yeah. Right. Mania, with or without a previous history of such. Psychosis. You've talked about paranoia. You've talked about um, homicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. And all, all kinds of things. So what, I mean, of course, that's, that's a whole other a podcast or, 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 you know, whole, whole uh, series of podcasts really on that. So of course we can't 
do that. That's completely. actually the, the lifetime work of the EPRC, right. sorting out that as yeah. part of part of what we're doing, figuring out, you know, a more sophisticated relationship to that than just terms like mania or psychosis. You know, right. So anyway. So, well, I do want to, 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 to come back to your recent retreat and make sure that and um, that we talk about that. So what can we say then? And what, what, what do you want to say about the, the, the dangers? You've talked a bit about it already, the dangers of um, mental instability or psychological instability, emotional instability in a kind of more clinical sense. Well, the clinical point of view depends on the frame you're coming from. If clinically you're coming from like a transpersonal framework, you might be way more tolerant of some of the weird, the archetypal, the bizarre, the opportunities, the healings, the deep stuff coming up, the Jungian, the, the you know, healing crisis, the, you might look at things through that kind of way and, or might think like, you know, um, about spiritual emergency kind of stuff versus spiritual emergence. Um, and for this kind of stuff, I'm just going to first off, give people some resources because this is too big and important a topic for the amount of time we have left. There's no way to do this proper justice. So I'm just going to refer people, if you want to see that kind of literature, to the work of Emma Bragdon, um, IMHU, which has a new YouTube channel, by the way, um, The Groffs, Christina and uh, Stanislav, and, and books such as some of these books here, Spiritual Emergency, which has authors like Jack Cornfield, and The Stormy Search for the Self, and some of those books, because even though it's coming from... Uh, a tradition which will linguistically and conceptually probably not translate that well to the clinical mainstream is sort of a bridge between books like these, where this is just normal stuff, and of course people have powers and their spirits, to the very muggly, you know, world of the clinical, um, you know, which I also, being a doctor, have this training in, you know, where you would call this psychosis and mania and delusions and hallucinations, and it's all bad, none of it's good, couldn't possibly be good for you, you know, certainly couldn't be real, whatever that means, and might need meds and or hospitalization and or rights taken away and or diagnoses that might say you're permanently broken for life, you now have bipolar disorder and will be on lithium for the rest of your life or whatever. Right. And then you've got the far other side of saying, no, this is all good, fine, a part of the journey, the highs, lows, the weirds, the darkness, you know, and then you've got people in between, which is, again, the transpersonal kids or like the wisdom of mental illness by Jez Hughes, which I highly recommend or breaking open, um, uh, talking about the psychedelic versions of this because, you know, similar territory and set of issues, right? Um, any of these deep transformative potential, uh, you know, very altering technologies that might do structural changes where you were one way in your life and now you're kind of another way in your life and you have to deal with that. And that's actually one of the things I want to talk about um, if we get there. But, uh, and maybe we do another podcast because this is an important topic we're, do, you know, working on. And so what we hope, you know, with the work I'm doing now is to figure out how to, how to, to bring these words, worlds together in some, with some data-driven way that gives people options for the risk tolerances, for the preferred frames of reference and preferred ontologies in a way that scales globally, in a way that expands out the conversation with good outcomes data so people can at least compare if we use this set of diagnostic strategies versus this set of diagnostic strategies versus these other sets of traditional diagnostic strategies or management strategies or cultivation strategies, what happens when you do that across a range of populations? What are the predisposing factors for good or bad outcomes? And what can we say even from a public health point of view about this? And then how can we integrate that into the global clinical mainstream? So that's what I spend most of my time working on these days, which is nothing resembling an easy problem, you know, project or problem and will, I think, take billions of dollars of research and decades of research across, you know, hundreds of people across many institutions and be a part of a very complicated um, conversation that in some ways could be era changing.
I mean, this, you know, we're talking about the fundamental relationship between science, public perception, religion, deep spiritual experiences, philosophy, ontologies, you know, et cetera. That's, that's the kind of changes that define the change of an era. This will not be quick or easy. And that's an ongoing conversation. By the way, if any of you out there listening to this have any idea how to find the billions of dollars that this will take, please let me know. My charity organization, none of it would go to me because um, I volunteer to do all this, but we're is trying to figure out how to answer those questions with a lot of top scientists from the best institutions around the world um, and lots of other excellent clinicians and people as well. So sorry for that shameless plug for my charity and and sort of day job, as it were, even though I'm a volunteer. Um, uh, yeah, but that's this, just realize there's nothing straightforward about this. Um, was that sort of a helpful disclaimer intro and provision of resources beyond what I could do in the rest of this podcast? Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to to handle that uh, issue without with the time we have left. So yeah. with the time we have left, and you have emphasized how important that that subject is, and you've given some some excellent resources. So with the time you have left, you just came back from a three week intensive fire casino retreat. Can you give us a report on your retreat? Sure. Yeah. Um, so important things. This is my 11th time really doing this um, on a retreat that had substantial fire casino themes. Um, we did it here at Hurricane Ranch, which is where I live. Um, it was with my wife and another friend who um, was doing actually just pure insight stuff because that's what they were into. So we were all sort of doing slightly different things. Um, and uh, this was kind of what I think of as kind of mid-range dose. So because I was also cooking and also dealing with some of the fact of being in my house and there's lawn care and there's some bills and stuff and there's some things and I had, and there was no way I could go totally digitally dark and maintain the other obligations I have to my charity and the research group I help coordinate, um, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. So I was still doing an hour or two a day of emails and, and, you know, the occasional texting and stuff just to keep some projects on the rails while I was gone. And to, you know, cause there are people who are, um, that we have hired to do various projects and I need to interact with some stuff. And so, um, so given all that, I was able to get maybe six, eight, nine, maybe occasionally 10 hours per day of practice, which for me is kind of like mid dose. That's not high dose. High dose for me is like 16 hours, you know, and there's a real difference. And so it took me a little longer to get into this territory. Um, the com so starting off, there was the common stuff of, you know, I'm looking at the candle flame, I'm getting the dot, you know. Um, but then there were some also surprising things like for the first day or two, the body just wanted to cycle through insight stages. Like it was just cycling like very rapidly and it would like see the dot, get the thing, and then it would just start dropping into dissolution and out into the dark night and out to equanimity. And that might take it some number of minutes. And this was kind of surprising. And then fruition and then come out, you know, reality synchronizes, disappears, reappears, come out, afterglow and then it just wanted to loop back again and again and i was surprised by this because i always wanted to power up and get to colors i whatever that means right but the system was doing what it was doing which was also fine you know and the system was uh you know, just looping back and stacking afterglows. And so, uh, you know, we've we've all got our sort of weird talents and gifts that we were given. One of mine is repeat fruitions. Um, and I can just, you know, get a fruition, take its afterglow as object, loop back, remember it, and then just again and again. And it would do this 20, 30 times in a sit, which is unusual for me. And usually it sort of gets tired after that, after a few loopbacks, it was not getting tired. And for whatever reason, you know, I, I hadn't been on retreat in, in, um, since early 2020. 
And it just somehow wanted to do that. I don't know if it was like clearing out stuff or it was just where it wanted to go. And then there was this tremendous sort of sense of peace and satisfaction that comes from stacking afterglows where they just, it just built and built and built and the body just wanted to rest and bathe in that space. So that was a sort of a common theme of the first two days. And yeah, the purple was getting brighter and the dot and, you know, the red dot and the, the usual stuff. And then, then I started getting murky, but it was a weird kind of murk. So the weird thing is I was getting murky where the visuals were kind of getting, you know, I was getting to the black dot a lot and getting to the sort of static, but it was very purpley. So purple is sort of my color. We have this concept of my color. And usually people have a color that is the color they tend to gravitate towards for whatever reason, mine's purple. I've often speculated about why people have various colors. So things start getting very purple and I'm starting to get into the lines, but it's murky. And then a lot of work content, you know, shows up. So if you're going to run a large organization, you know, there are going to be pe people you have conflict with and situations. And then there's the stress of figuring out where all the money is going to come from. You know, uh, my charity is at risk of possibly running out of money sometime past December, um, unless we get some donations renewed and, and things. And so um, that, you know, that's obviously stress. I don't need the money, but the people I work with definitely do to continue to do this. And we spend a lot of time building capacity. So these kinds of work thoughts would be coming up. But the fascinating thing is, as I was mentioning, they were coming up against this profound sense of background tranquility and spaciousness and bliss, which made them A, way easier to deal with. And then the whole thing just turned to these lower centers. So I'm going to stand up for a second. It just like the practice became about um, here and here and this area right here. And sorry, I was kind of away from the microphone. Um, the sound kind of probably wasn't so good. But um, and then that became this thing. And there was like, so there was that, which became very sort of painful and heartachy and sort of tense and like, ah, and, uh, and heavy and dense and filled with these feelings of sort of sadness and remorse and grief. And then I had this weird tour of like curious things from like high school and college as part of a thematic thing, a lot of which I thought I had dealt with years ago. And then I found that those kinds of things coming up, the foolishness of youth and the unfortunate, you know, immaturities of early relationships and all of that stuff and the sense of grief and remorse for those things. And then, um, yeah. And then, so uh, then practice became this much more complicated thing as the colors became more elaborate where I'm getting into the flux lines and the splines and the swirls and the shields and the elaborate, you know, patterns and the flows and all this kind of elemental stuff. Right. So it started getting a lot more elemental with mists and fogs and fire washes. You know, you start, the elements start to show themselves like the fire element washing in brilliant amber across the screen in that kind of fiery consumey way or the water element where all of a sudden I started seeing bubbles and droplets and, you know, very three-dimensional and luminous and things. But against, so there was this sort of uneven development where even though the visuals were really getting quite strong and I started getting to what I call the white and gold, which is this thing up here that a lot of people would say, though, that's the nimitta. And it becomes, starts off sort of a, a grayish or brown or purple iridescence for me. And then it'll sort of get more golden and then it'll start getting brighter and whiter. And it, it becomes a sort of very sort of cohesive, non-pixelated, bright white iridescence that if I go far enough, will eventually light and it becomes like staring into a brilliant white jet engine, you know, of incredible fast stuff. It never fully lit on this retreat, which is fine. It doesn't always do that on retreats. Um, but so then I started, get, but then like it would, I would get these weird mixes of like heart centered sort of like these, you know, heart and solar plexus, you know, heart and power 
kind of um, things, but against these backgrounds of vast luminous spaciousness. So these kind of hybrid or fusion states, which are a mix of kind of like expansive formless realm, yet with body still there, yet with insight cycles sometimes rolling through, yet with these purple visuals that are now becoming more and more developed. And sometimes, you know, and then I started getting color control and image control to some degree where I can kind of craft and interact with these things or change the colors to what I call the interior design colors of like change the purple to like a nice teal or a, you know, a pale gold or, you know, a, a nice pink. And then at some point in the middle of this, I started getting these experiences where the colors began to correlate with the emotions. So that's always an interesting one. They described this in the old text where like the a subtle shade of red or pink showing up might have something to do with whatever feelings I'm feeling. And it's interesting because feelings that might seem kind of far apart can often have very, very similar colors, like the subtleties of pink or red or orange that might be, you know, desire versus anger versus, you know, irritation versus whatever. It's like they might be very similar colors, even though the feelings they might correspond to might be very, very different. And so then, I, yeah, so then that was sort of the middle of the retreat. Right. And I could talk more about all of this. And then as the retreat went on somewhere around day 10, 11, 12, there was more of the brilliant iridescences and more of the, um, you know, massive sort of patterns of multitudes and fractals of the lines becoming like, uh, I tend to get a lot of sort of squids or octopus like things in these massive repeating patterns. And then, you know, I had a few of these experiences of sort of what seemed like hyperdimensional sort of tesseracty kind of people describe this kind of stuff on DMT, right? Where brilliant, very immersive, incredibly symmetric, like symmetries going out into symmetries and these lattices of networks of a mix of organic and kind of structural, this again, you know, sort of DMT like. Um, things. And then uh, uh, heard one voice during this retreat. Um, and it was just this male voice sort of over there. And it said, I'll be back. <laughs> Wasn't back, but it, no obvious meaning for me. But, you know, it's just strange things that could happen. Anyway, so that was the only obvious voicey thing I heard. Um, other than that, no real entity stuff, which was interesting for me because often the stuff will start forming into entities and there'd be some sort of interactivity. There was none of that, which was curious. Um, but then some of the highlights of the retreat came right at the end. And maybe I'll sort of talk about those now that I've talked about the sort of middle phase. Oh, the middle phase also, I was floating a lot. So I did a lot of floats in the float tank, which is very cool. I did a lot of meta practice in there for the tense um, situations that related to interpersonal stuff related to work and some conflicts. I did a lot of meta in there and, and just hoping everybody is well and happy. Um, and what else? So, but then the, the kind of the cool highlights, and these are the things that, you know, after a day of practice that might've just been a lot of purple splines and flux lines and stuff. I'm going to talk some of the highlights, even though you know, these are very short experiences, but this is sort of the cherries on the, on the Sunday. Um, and some of the cherries on the Sunday, once I got really out into the sense of equanimity where the, the, the pains and the, the solar plexus and the heart stuff that were gone and there was the sense of peace and equanimity about these things and it seemed to have moved through or worked out or whatever um so one night i had this dream and it starts out as a dream and then it goes to a waking experience which is very interesting so in this dream i'm out on my front lawn which has a bunch of sort of tall thin cypress trees and there's grass and there's my house and there's this area kind of under the house under a, a, a patio balcony where they leave packages like FedEx and UPS. 
And in this dream, there was a package there. And as soon as I picked up the package, everything became like made out of points of light. And so all of a sudden, rather than my normal lawn and trees and houses, there's this vast black space, like you were in outer space and everything you can see through it to just vastness. But the whole lawn and the house and everything were made out of little points of bright light in the color, you know, the tree, the trees were made out of green points of light, you know, a thousand points of light. So I'm having a George Bushian, um, anyway, <laughs> dream at this point, but, and even my entire body just became made out of these sort of amber points of light that you could see through and there are every few inches and there were very just like bright points just gleaming there relatively, you know, sort of subtly wavering, but relatively stable as these things go. And then all of a sudden I was awake in my bedroom, but the bedroom and my body and everything are made out of these same points of light. So at this point, this is not a dream. Um, I'm there on the bed, but the bed is made of points of light. My body is made of points of light and they're sort of gently drifting or kind of like subtly flowing. Like there's a kind of a gentle, current, you know, like, like in a gently moving ocean or something of vast space. And there's this vastness of, of sort of boundless space that's there. And then in between these points of light was this sort of silvery iridescent mist that started sort of gently moving through. And the points of lights and the silvery iridescent mist were just sort of gently interacting with each other in this very sort of just happening on its own kind of way. And the most interesting thing was the trend, this lasted for about 20 minutes. So that's a very long time for one of these experiences to last. And then it just slowly faded back into the room and the room was all there and it gradually transitioned back to ordinary materiality and sense of body structure and things happening the way they usually do. But it was just a profoundly beautiful experience. I don't know how to map it. I don't know what it means. I don't, I'm not making any claims about it. I'm simply describing phenomenologically and that was just an extremely beautiful and serene, um, very peaceful, beautiful, nice, thank you, Fire Casino gift. Don't know what to make of it. It's not any maps I know of. It's just a thing. Um, and then the next night, another thing was, uh, again, I woke up in the middle of the night and again, I'm awake and I'm just lying in, there, my, in the bed and, and I'm meditating. And all of a sudden around me, there are these shells of like sort of subtle silvery iridescence, like Russian dolls, one about every four inches. And there's about six or seven of them around me. And just these sort of shells of sort of silvery energy. And then all of a sudden, after just kind of them being there for a while, they just sort of one, starting with the middle one, just went and sort of gently condensed into the center of my solar plexus. Um, yeah, like right about there and just sort of three-dimensionally went in. And then the next one, a few seconds later went and coalesced in, the next one coalesced in, and then the next one coalesced in, and then the next one coalesced in until they were all gone. And then I was sitting there in this very clear space of just this amazing sense of sort of subtly healed serenity. Like, so I don't know what this did. Again, this is not on my maps. I don't know what to call it. I can just describe it. And there was this sense of, oh, that was a really nice thing to have happened. Thank you, Fire Casino. And again, I don't know what it means. So I'm just describing these things. Anyway, those are some highlights from the retreat, good times. Um, and then it was also really fun, like hanging out, cooking food, you know, having conversations um, with uh, my wife and my friend about the interesting things we were going through and just sharing the journey in a really nice um, way. So that was also one of the highlights of the retreat, but um, owing to, I don't know if they would want any of the specifics of their lives or, you know, um, confidences, you know, um, described. I'm just going to leave it at that. But that was also 
these retreats are very social and they build friendships. And I get the sense when I think about the, the, the Sangha practicing back in the day, I get the sense it was more like this. They went on alms rounds together. You know, they walked into the village and would interact with people. And then they would go back and sit and meditate. They sat around talking about practice. And so I think this is more in some ways of keeping with the spirit of what they did back in the day as I attempt to reconstruct how they had their remarkable reported successes. And I think this is important. And, uh, and these practices are powerful enough that you can talk and still go super deep. You know, I might've spent a few hours a day talking and a lot of people are like, oh no, you can't do that. Well, okay, but it turns out you can. And it may even be really good from a safety, integration, healing, health, normalization, um, other perspective, keep you on the rails, process what's going on while it's going on kind of point of view. So, and it's way more fun and social and builds good friends, assuming you pick good people to retreat with who keep their wits about with them and are able to handle the weird. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. Thank you for that report. You had another insight then. I mean, what's your hard stop, by the way? I'm assuming it's in seven minutes. Yep, I have a, a hard stop in seven minutes. Mm. But thank you very much for this time. It's been so fun chatting with you about these things. And again, yes. I would love to hear more of your opinions and, how you and your adventures. I know you try to stay out of this and, and focus on the interviewee, but I always am interested in your thoughts. And Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, zealously op op opposed to sharing them, but do you want to talk about this um, splits and coping mechanisms and so on? Do you want to touch on that? Yeah. So one of the things I did is when I was cooking on this retreat, I was listening, listening to the remarkable book by Jeffrey Kripal called The Flip. And the essential premise, which I just read the book or listen to it. It's fantastic. It's so important. Great job, Jeffrey. Um, and, you know, all the work that went and other people done by other people that helped support the book to come into existence because he references a lot of other people's stuff. It's also good to check out. But the basic idea is you've got a person who's like a neuroscientist or a mathematician or a muggle or whatever you want to call them. I don't mean that in any pejorative way, just they haven't had any mystical, magical experiences. I'm sure they're a fine and excellent person, right? And so they, you know, so please don't jump all over the, my use of that term. I mean it in a friendly, nice way. Um, and uh, so they're one way, and then they have an experience on psychedelics through deep philosophical inquiry, through a meditation retreat, through ordinary life experiences, through a traumatic event, whatever. And then they're a totally different way where suddenly notions of cosmic consciousness or idealism or, you know, divine something or mysteries or energetic stuff or something, there's a line in their life and now they're flipped. And, and this is the vast category of all the stuff we've been talking about, which can have a lot of different ways and a lot of different ideas about it when people come out of it. But what I realized is that this flipped state is then in relationship to and across some sort of functional and paradigmatic and existential and philosophical dividing line from not only the previous way that person was in their own life, but also every time you draw one of these lines and there are more lines that might be drawn as their practice evolves or they get more revelations or pieces of the puzzle if you want to call them that or experiences right there's all these lines that then get drawn in a sort of larwellian sense right where there seems to be a dividing line you make a larwellian decision you draw a line between this side and that side and functionally there seems to be but then i recognize that Across all of those lines, eventually all of the coping mechanisms, and we could talk about like the five stages of grief to make it simple, which is like denial, anger, bargaining, grief, acceptance, but also 
like rationalization and projection and, you know, sublimation and reaction formation and just, you know, sort of, you know, um, all the dis things of dismissal or denial or regression or whatever will happen across those lines on both sides. Right. So the people who are still sort of muggly, I'm, again, don't mean the pejorative term, will react to the now the weirdos or whatever, the you know, um, in ways that will involve all of the mature and immature coping mechanisms eventually. And this side will then react to that side with all of, you know, aggrandizement or dismissal or, you know, um, idealization. You know, they will all react to both sides and people will even react this way in themselves to parts of their being that aren't all on the same plane, you know, maybe parts of their being are totally on board with the new way of being, but parts of their being from an internal family system's point are not. And across all of those internal, external, society-wide, cultural, institutional lines of, you know, um, there will be all of the mature and immature coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms, and stages of grief applied. And this is what people are not talking about. And we need to help people with this. Like if you've reacted to anything I'm saying, or, oh, he's crazy, or, oh, he must be amazing, you know, or, you know, all these kind of splitting things that people can do, just recognize that I've had that those same reactions to myself internally and to, you know, previous, you know, parts of myself. Have had those kinds of reactions and people have had those reactions to me and friends and family and community and that's just what happens when the stuff starts happening to people and we need to be so much better as societies and cultures about being conscious about that recognizing what coping mechanisms we ourselves are using to relate to these splits these flips as jeffrey kripal would call them um, within ourselves within others um, within our communities within our friends families and then even look at the way that institutions then will solidify certain sets of these coping mechanisms. Like when you, you know, when the materialists call all this simply crazy and delusional, they've essentially, you know, picked a very specific set of coping mechanisms, not all mature, and um, and then institutionalize those to actually parts of the global healthcare system, um, which I have been a part of, and I'm trying to figure out how to make better and helping to gently point out that the sophisticated tools of psychology, Western psychology, which came up with the sense of psychological defense mechanisms, coping mechanisms, stages of grief, can actually then begin to apply those to these flips and to the way this affects individuals and institutions and national policies and diagnostic codes and all of that. And that's part of the work we're doing through the EPRC. So I just wanted to put that out there. We're about out of time. I super thank you for your time. Um, just as an idea, we could develop that for a whole podcast if you want to, it'd be a fascinating discussion. But that was one of the insights that came to me on this retreat. We just need to do that way better for ourselves and our uh, others and institutions. Wonderful. Well, I think there's a sequel in the offing there. Daniel Ingram, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.